started a series last week on faith and miracles, and I want to continue in that vein today as I talk about the gospel transforms. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 8. We're going to camp out there. One of the things that we're learning is that God transforms people and cities, communities, through the agency of individuals, ordinary people like you and me, that are yielded to the Holy Spirit. And even in the midst of trials, God still uses His people. In fact, right before I begin reading, let me set it up where we are historically. The church at Jerusalem, the first church, they just were hit real big time with persecution. Stephen became the first martyr. And when Stephen was stoned to death, that just emboldened these wild, irreligious people. And they started to throw believers of Jesus in prison and even hurt them physically. And let's see what happened as a result of the persecution. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I'm always amazed that even when we're facing problems, real problems, God can still use us in a big time way. So I want you to be very, very mindful of that, that even though you may have trials and problems in your own life, that's no excuse for God not using you. God has a vested interest in using you in the areas of miracles, healing, salvation for others, and deliverance for those who have been bound up by Satan. I want you to be mindful of that. And Scripture teaches us that. So as we talk about gospel transformation, let me now ask this question. How does the gospel transform people and cities? And the Bible has answers. Let's look at the first answer. Ordinary people are used by God. God never looks for superstars. He uses ordinary people. Why? An ordinary person, they're not famous. They don't have any major accomplishments. They don't have any major accolades behind their name. They're not popular. They're not even well-known. And not that God can't use the popular and well-known. He can. But He's not looking for someone who's a superstar per se. He's simply looking for someone who's willing to say, Lord, not my will be done, but Your will be done. God is looking for people that are willing to glorify Him through a lifestyle of surrender. And that's what's important. In fact, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 points to that. Scripture says, But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was Jesus speaking to the early church. And he didn't put any names. He didn't attach any requirement other than 
you. Have you been born again? Have you given your heart to Jesus? Then you are a candidate to be used by God in ministry that's powerful and transformative. And so Jesus did not qualify who the you was because he knew and he recognized he was talking about ordinary people just like you and me. And so I want us to recognize a story now, what I just read in Acts chapter 8. Here's Philip. Our first introduction to Philip is in Acts chapter 6. He's an ordinary guy. Acts 6 tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And those two traits caused him to be selected to become a deacon in the church. Someone that assists in the mundane, it's in the, the physical care of the church, he may have been setting up chairs before the meeting or sweeping the place or something that required a faithful, godly character that people trust. But he had no title of major importance. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a pastor at the time, nor was he an evangelist at the time in terms of the actual ordination of that. That came many, many years later. Philip wasn't even a teacher in terms of the biblical office of a teacher. Not at that time. None of those titles were befitting of Philip. And what we recognize though, he just wanted to be used of God. Note what Acts 8 verse 4 says. Those who had been scattered, that's from the persecution, preached the word wherever they went. Ordinary people. There were no labels, no, no biblical offices they filled. Just those. They didn't even tell us who they were. And then all of that story comes one individual that they just picked out just to show us an example. They're saying, this is just an example of what God can do. And so I want you to see Philip was an ordinary guy, and God chose to use him. Why? Because Philip made himself available. So I'm answering the question, how do cities become transformed? How do people meet the Savior? Through the agency of ordinary men and women who are surrendered to Christ. J.I. Packer, an evangelical theologian, he tells us what we must do, rather, is acknowledge that we are all full of tradition, good or bad, to a much greater extent than we realize, and must learn to ask by the light of Scripture critical questions about what we have thus far taken for granted. So Packer is just simply saying, look, stop allowing all of this negative tradition to flood your heart and stop allowing individuals that are just mere human beings to have such a great influence over you that tells you what you can't do and what you can do. What Packer is really saying is let God use you. I remember it was years ago, we were having a special service at the East Campus, our Montclair, New Jersey campus. And in that special service, we're going to be praying for people, praying for the sick, praying for those who are just bound up by the power of darkness. We're just asking God for miracles. Right after I finished teaching and some topic on faith, just to help people understand what God can do, just to awaken their faith, I invited people to the altar area that wanted to get filled with the Holy Spirit. They wanted to experience the baptism of the Spirit. That is, God fills them with the Spirit, like what I just read in Acts 1 verse 8, and they begin to speak in another language supernaturally as an initial evidence of the infilling. And so people came to the altar, and I said to the congregation, please don't send anybody up 
Parents, don't send your kids. If they don't want to come up, leave them alone. If they choose to come, let them come. Among the people at the altar, there was this little boy. I mean, he looked about seven years old, eight tops. And when I just stood at the, on the platform, and there must have been about 50, 60 people at the altar, and I just said, I gave them some instruction, then I waved my hand across the audience. Nothing powerful in my hand. It was just a point of releasing of their faith. I said, when I wave my hand across the audience, I'm going to say, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to get filled with the Spirit instantly. And when I waved my hand across the altar... A number of people, or across the people rather, a number of people got filled with the Spirit instantly, including that seven-year-old boy. And he was just ecstatic, tears rolling down his face. He's lifting his hands, praising God. He's speaking now in his new heavenly language. That, you know, you know, and, and he's just speaking and just enjoying himself, so to speak, in the Lord. And then there were others that didn't get filled. And I said to that little seven-year-old boy, and I don't know his name, let's give him the name Mike. I said, Mike, come on up here. And Mike said, me? I said, yeah, yeah, you, you. And I said, Mike, I want you to stand next to me. I want you to pray for these individuals that have not been filled with the Spirit. Mike said, me? I said, yeah, you. He said, what do I say? And we're having this dialogue in front of the congregation and in front of those who are not even spirit-filled as of yet. And I said, I want you to say, I want you to go over to them and you're going to lay hands on them. Just touch them very gently and you're going to say, be filled with the Spirit in Jesus' name. That's it. We went to the first person and little Mikey, he, did, he touched that lady on her, on her hand and, and he said, be filled. And he forgot the rest of it. And I, he looked at me as if to say, what should I say? And I said, be filled with the Spirit in Jesus' name. And he said, be filled with the Spirit in Jesus' name. Instantly, the woman got filled with the Spirit. And we went down the line and little Mikey prayed for the rest of the people and they got filled with the Spirit. I wanted to demonstrate to the congregation this singular point. You don't need to be a pastor to be used by God. You don't need to be an adult to be used by God. You don't even need to be experienced with God to be used by God. Little Michael was able to be used by God, and that really reinforced the singular point. God looks for ordinary people when it comes to city transformation and transformation of people. Just days ago, and perhaps weeks when you're watching this particular sermon, that on the global stage, the world heard about Molly Seidel. Molly is an American, 26 years old, and she ran in the marathon representing our country. But here's the, here's the kicker. Molly ran her first marathon, 26.2 miles, on February 29th, 2019, in Atlanta, which was the qualifying race. That means whoever did really, really well can enter into the Olympics and represent our country. Molly, who's unknown, she ran and in, the, in that qualifying race, the U.S. Olympic trials, and she came in second place. And so she qualified for the Tokyo Olympics. And so Molly now has to face the pressure of not only running for our country, but she's running against all the well-known global world-class runners on the global stage. And so her history only had when she ran for Notre Dame in college years prior and she was exposed to the NCAA. Now it's a different ballgame, global stage. 
And interestingly enough, Molly worked as a barista, then a babysitter before becoming a bronze medal winner that stood alongside the two other medalists and champions at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Could you imagine that? Here's Molly. And when the, the NPR News interviewed her, Molly says to the reporters after the race, I wanted to go and be that person who when you're racing, they're all saying, who's this girl? I just wanted to stick my nose in where it didn't belong and get after it. And the Olympics only happens every four years. You might as well take your shot. And that's what she said. Here's my point. If God can use someone ordinary like Molly to <laughs> come in third place in this global contest, God looks for the ordinary in the greater contest of helping people transition from hell-bound to heaven-bound and to shape cities. He's looking for people like you and he's looking for people like me. So to answer the question, how does the gospel transform? Answer through ordinary people. May I give you a second answer? And we're going to delve into the text now. Through power evangelism. Philip was used to preach the word and demonstrate God's power in a city in Samaria. Philip believed that God still saves. He believed that God still heals. Power evangelism is when you preach the word and support the preaching through signs, wonders, and miracles. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 6. The crowds paid close attention to what Philip said as they listened to him and saw the miracles he performed. Evil spirits came out from many people with a loud cry and many paralyzed and lame people were healed. See, the gospel is more than just words. It includes transformative power. Oh, how we have reduced the gospel, particularly here in America and in the Western world, to just being slick preachers, effective communicators. But we cannot forget about the power of the Holy Spirit. God's not looking for slick communicators. He's looking for men and women that are willing to communicate with clarity the gospel, but also communicate by allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to use them to pray for the sick and the oppressed and the demonized and those who are just so traumatized to be set free. In fact, at the end of this teaching, don't you turn this channel off and think, oh, sermon's over, that means ministry's over. No, I'm going to have a personal ministry time to pray for you if you've been psychologically traumatized, abused, you're overwhelmed, you're gripped by perhaps jealousy, you can't, can't get free, rage takes its hold over you, or the deep depression has trapped you. My job as a preacher and a facilitator of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is to help everyone who's been burdened by the devil. This was not Philip's perspective alone. This was Jesus' view of how ministry should be done. In fact, let's take a play out of Jesus' playbook. Luke 9 verse 1 says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. 
Notice, Philip's ministry emulated the ministry style of Jesus. Preach the word, operate in power. Preach the word, pray for the oppressed. And Jesus was telling the 12 disciples, guys, I'm sending you out to do ministry. When you go out, there are two things you must do. That's what the gospel is all about. Communicate the good news and let the Holy Spirit use you to demonstrate the good news by helping setting the oppressed free. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. I want you to see, it's not just Philip and Jesus that use this model. Years later, when Paul was called into ministry, Paul also used this model of ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, here's what Paul said. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I want you to see that the gospel is not in word only. Philip modeled that. Jesus practiced that. Paul did it. And we have an obligation in our day to do the very same thing. And so that's why I'm saying when I finish my teaching time, my focus today is to pray for you if you've been bound up with envy, gripped by rage, you're psychologically traumatized, you feel as if I, don't, I can't get free, I don't know what it is that's been, been binding you mentally and psychologically, but whatever it is, including Satan, his hold will be, will, will be broken over your life today. Why? Because I believe in the authority of the believer. That's what Jesus told us. He gave us power, the might, the ability, the right, the strength, authority. Authority is a legal right to represent God in the earth. And that's what I want to see God do for you. So Philip, when he went to that city in Samaria, here's this guy, no fancy title, he didn't stand in any church office at the time. When I say church office, he wasn't in fivefold ministry at the time. That's years later that we see that take place. Philip, an ordinary guy who's running for his life because persecution's taking place in Jerusalem, he, along with others, went to various cities for refuge as they were running for their life, hiding out from those trying to kill them. They're preaching the word. What a powerful legacy you and I have. The body of Christ, we should not allow our own personal problems or our own personal crises to put us on this, this, this ash pile where we are not used by God. You may have problems financially. That is not a deal breaker for God to not use you. You may even be sick. That's not a deal breaker for God to not use you. You may feel as if, look at Paul. Paul was in prison and he was still saying, pray for me that I may have an opportunity to preach the gospel. My point is the mindset of the early Christians was so powerful and focused on kingdom building that they did not allow their own personal challenges, personal trials, personal crises to be deal breakers for them to be used by God. Amidst the trials and persecution, they're still saying, God, use me for your glory. And may I say to you, that's what our generation needs today. 
men and women who are so sold out and singularly focused that regardless of what's going on in our lives, we can be like a Philip. We're running because people are trying to persecute us. And as we run, we're preaching the gospel. And as we run, we're letting God use us to pray for the sick and to help the demonized get free. And I want you to recognize that's how cities are transformed. That's how people come to Christ, through ordinary people, through power evangelism. And may I now tell you that people and communities are transformed through power encounters. That phrase may be something unfamiliar to you, power encounter. What's that? Well, let's take a look at what happened, and then I'll unpack its meaning. Verse 6 says of Acts 8, The crowds were eager to receive Philip's message and were persuaded by the many miracles and wonders he performed. Many demon-possessed people were set free. Note the word, set free, and delivered. Note those two terms. As evil spirits came out of them with loud screams and shrieks, and many who were lame and paralyzed were also healed. This resulted in an uncontainable joy filling the city. Excuse me. Notice, when you see the term set free, it means that someone was enchained or burdened, or handcuffed, or bound. When you see the term delivered, it means someone had to be taken out of bondage and liberated. That tells me then that somehow Satan's job is to oppress, it's to enslave, it's to render people passive to bring them under his control where they're passive. They have no personal control for themselves. A power encounter is when the power of God comes and confronts the power of darkness. The power of God is always more powerful. They're not equal opposite foes that are fighting and we don't know who's going to win. Absolutely not. The power of God is more substantive. It's more dynamic it's more significant, far so, far more than the power of the enemy. God is looking for a man or a woman, someone like you, someone like me, ordinary people that dare to believe that the power of God, when it encounters the power of darkness, it can subdue the power of darkness and set people free and deliver them. So that's what Philip did. Philip, when he traveled, he saw himself as a deliverer. He saw himself as someone, when he preaches and he prays for people, he sets them free. He's not just talking about it. Now, that term, power encounter, think about it this way like an umbrella term. Underneath it is truth encounter, allegiance encounter, and we can also distinguish and say power encounter. And so I want us to unpack that for a moment. Why? Because I want you to see how God sets people free who've been bound. Truth encounter. Remember the words of Jesus in John 8 verse 32. Jesus says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A truth encounter is when you deal with someone that is oppressed, that is bound up, 
that is living a passive life because Satan has rendered them passive, brought them under his control. That can be through sickness, that can be through depression, that can be through emotional trauma, and though something natural may have precipitated that, they're now gr driven and bound up whether by fear or something that just brings them to that place. They can't live a flourishing life. A truth encounter is when you present to them the truth of what God says about them, and it confronts the lie that they've been living and believing and embellishing and walking out. And when they accept the truth of what God's Word says about them, it is amazing what can happen. One woman, she felt as if no one loved her except for her husband. And she was walking around living that way. She had gone through so much, so many hours of counseling, both pastoral counseling as well as professional Christian counseling to help her. It didn't help. She had gone through all the disciplines. Let me read the Bible. Let me pray. Let me try harder. She did that. Still no liberation or freedom. Finally, this man of God who understood the world of how God can use you in the supernatural. When she came to him for help after one of the services, she said, I think nobody loves me in the world, but only my husband. I feel so unlovable. He then began to pray this simple prayer. Wasn't loud, wasn't emotional, but, and that's what power encounter is. And that's what, and I'm specifically illustrating truth encounter. It's not about loudness. It's not about the music playing on the piano. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the authority of God's word. And do you believe it or not? And here's what he prayed over her. Lord, in a very quiet way. Lord, let the truth of the fact that you have made this woman. She's wonderful. And you have made her beautiful. And, you, and, and she's fearfully and wonderfully made. Let the truth of your word flood her life right now. And when he said that, she started reacting in a way that was so antithetical to her character. She's a very coiffured, dignified, well-spoken, well-educated woman. Her head started rearing back and she started emoting and expressing. And it was clear this was a demon that had been infiltrating her mind and infiltrating her life and bringing her into this place of dominion and control. And she's there emoting, just like what we said, we read in Acts 8, where the, in that case, there was loud shrieks when the demons were leaving. Why? It was an encounter. You're driving out a spirit. You're not polite. This is not politeness. This is authority speaking to someone that should not be controlling, or something rather, that should not be controlling someone. And when that man, when he, he said, be free. All of those physical gyrations stopped and the woman became free. A truth encounter is when the truth of God's word challenges the lie that you have been believing and the source of that lie is Satan. And when you then say, God, I accept the truth of what your word is as to who I am, that's when you get set free. That's the truth encounter. That's all part of what I'm talking about, power encounters. Then there is allegiance encounter. Allegiance encounter, is you find that in James 4 verse 7. James says this, 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Let me read it again. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Watch the text. You can't resist the devil in your own strength. Two forces. Demonic, God. Demonic, divine, God. The devil, God. Who are you going to choose? James says, when you, if you want to resist the devil and for the devil to flee, you first have to submit yourself to God. Establish an allegiance, an alignment. You have to un- answer the question, whose side am I on? And I want you to recognize the validity of it. I remember when I was praying for this young lady, looked very coiffured. She's about 5'8", 5'9", 120 pounds, looked like a model, and yet she was demonized. Guys that were, he had a couple of three, four, five guys that were over six foot tall, 250 pounds, couldn't hold her down when she was emoting. And when I got wind of this whole situation, I'm not putting myself on any pedestal as if I'm, I'm the guy, but when this situation came to me days later, and I met with that woman and I brought in two of my intercessors that understood demonology and understood how to cast out demons and set people free. The first thing I said to that woman is, who do you want to walk with? Do you want to walk with Jesus or do you want to walk with Satan? Do you want to serve Christ or serve the enemy, which is serving yourself? And she said, I want to serve Jesus. That then allegiance encounter gave me the legal right to cast out that spirit. And in about an hour, that spirit came out and she was set free. You should have seen her response, the countenance change, how her behavior changed, how her, you know, how her relationship with God changed. My point to you is that when Philip reached that city in Samaria, you want to see city transformation take place. It's preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Philip allowed power encounter, the power of God, to encounter the power of darkness and break yokes. I love what Beth Moore, noted Bible teacher and author, said. Nobody appreciates deliverance like those who have nearly been destroyed. Ladies and gentlemen, our God is a delivering God. He sets captives free. The gospel transforms through ordinary people, through power evangelism, and through power encounter. And right now, I want to pray for you. If you have been bound up, suicidal, deep depression, rage, and even gripped by jealousy where you can't get free or you feel so unloved, you are the person right now that God wants to see and experience freedom. In a moment, you're going to be free when I pray over you and speak God's word to you, wherever you are. If you're driving, pull over onto the side of the road so that you can experience this freedom. If you're sitting in your living room, don't, don't multitask. This is your moment for God to do something with you. The only thing I ask is that you send us an email afterwards to let us learn what God did for you through this time of ministry. Get ready now. The Holy Spirit is about to evoke change change in you and you're about to be delivered and set free by the power of God. Father, I ask you 
to go into every living room, every bedroom where someone's watching me right now, every car where someone's pulled over on the side of the road, where they're bound up with depression or they may be suicidal or they may be so filled with rage that they, they fly out of control and they can't control their anger or maybe jealousy that so gripped them. I pray God that right now where they are that you set them free. I loose you from the powers of darkness right now in the name of Jesus. I speak to you as a, as a man of God and I say be free from every dark demonic force try to grip you and hold you back and keep you in a state of passivity. I loose you from the bondage of darkness right now. Be free in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that you're doing it all over the world for each person watching right now. I thank you in the wonderful name of Jesus, the Savior of the world. And if you have never prayed with me before to give your heart to Jesus, this is the time in our service where I want to lead you in a prayer of repentance. Would you repeat after me this simple prayer? Heavenly Father, forgive me of all of my sins. In fact, wash them away. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Change me and help me to walk with you every day of my life, starting right now. I ask you this. In the powerful, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you just prayed with me, I want you to follow the promptings on the screen. We want to anchor in that decision that you've made. And so we have some godly men and women that are standing by ready to be able to engage with you and to help you. And so we want to connect with you some literature that will help ground you in this decision that you may grow in Jesus Christ. And if God has just delivered you from whatever it is, that psychological, emotional bondage you've been feeling, please send us an email. Tell us what God's done so we can rejoice with those who rejoice. God bless you. Look forward to our next time together.